0: Health Matters with Karin Key. Good evening to you and welcome to this week's edition of Health Matters. On the show this evening, I'll be talking with Dr. Catherine Davies, a medical practitioner based in Johannesburg, about eyebrow transplants. Nikki Zaboyle is the Executive Director of the SACWU Worker Health Program, and she'll be joining me in studio to tell us about medical male circumcision and the Clever Dick campaign. Then I'll be joined on the line by Joan Deere. She's a colorectal cancer survivor and an ambassador for Bee Cancer's Ignoring a Gut Feeling campaign. It's Bee Cancer Aware's Ignoring a Gut Feeling campaign. And she's working to change the lack of awareness and to increase screening for this disease. And finally, I'll be chatting with Cindy Chin, a registered dietitian working for Woolworths, about that daily chore we all do, lunch boxes. And she'll be giving us some tips about how to pack them more healthily. Now, if you're a regular listener to my other shows on SAFM, you know that I always talk about the list of available documents for the Law Report Program. Well, there's now a list of available documents for this show, Health Matters, as well. Just go to the Facebook page, Health Matters on SAFM. And if you'd like any of them, post a message on Facebook. But please remember to include your email address so I can send them to you. And if you don't have access to Facebook, drop me an email to healthmatters at safm.co.za. And I'll send you the list so you can choose which of the documents you'd like me to send. Well, that's the lineup for this evening. I do hope you'll stay with me and enjoy the show here on SAFM.
1: Are you at wit's end with a colicky baby? Whatever you have heard or been told, there is definitely very effective treatment available for your baby. Just email babycolic 911 at gmail.com. I repeat, email babycolleague911 at gmail.com. Health Matters with Karin Key.
0: Well, medical male circumcision is a simple, safe, once-off procedure that substantially reduces a man's lifetime risk of HIV infection. Getting the word out there is an ongoing process, and currently the Clever Dick campaign is being rolled out in Swanee. Joining me in studio this evening is Nikki Saboyle, Executive Director of the Sakwu Worker Health Program. Nikki, good evening. Welcome to the show. Evening, Kay. So tell me, what is the Clever Dick campaign?
2: This is a targeted messaging campaign at, at specific communities and populations um, where we are trying to encourage demand or uptake of, of male circumcision, and it's it's a campaign focusing on certain messages that we're finding. Um, for instance, when we initially rolled out, we, re- we rolled out here in the Western Cape, where uptake and demand we had a very low baseline uh, virtually nothing there was very little awareness so the messaging was directed at at creating awareness and demand in swani there it's very seasonal and so the messaging is focused on on explaining that medical male circumcision can actually exist right throughout the year or be be conducted throughout the year um, and for instance in cape it was by circumcise in Swanee, it's summer, spring, do your thing. So it's very targeted at the specific communi- t- population and the, and the requirements that are, that are needed communicated within those, those communities.
0: So let's talk about medical male circumcision and the need for this, because this is a relatively new in terms of HIV that's been around in this country for a good number of years. This is a relatively new angle that's being taken now.
2: Well, it's uh, after some clinical, a number of clinical trials that that were undertaken. One of which was here in South Africa. Um, it became evident that up to, there was an up to sixty percent reduction in risk of female to male transmission of the HIV virus um, with, with men that was that were circumcised. At the moment, there are trials that there's a trial that has just been undertaken that is also evidence there's a du- reduction in male to female transmission. However, obviously, there has to be more um, evidence of that fact. But certainly from female to, uh, female to male, there is definitely an up to 60% reduction in the transmission of the HIV virus.
0: Now, one of the things when you talk about medical male circumcision is we need to explain that it's a relatively simple procedure it's not you don't need to be hospitalized for days on end it's not a huge medical undertaking could we just go through why it is necessary we've done that but also how easy it is to do this
2: and in, in fact, our particular model that's that, that such to initiate it here in this country, it doesn't even have to happen in a clinical or medical setting. It can actually happen in a non-medical setting. We can do it in a, in a hall. In, we've done it in all sorts of tribal courts, going out into really rural communities. We've set up tents. We've set up um, – so as long as there's running water and electricity and um, we have sterile kits in order to do it,
0: it – it really is a relatively simple procedure. Um, and what has been the uptake? I mean, what is the sort of response from the community? It varies. It's very,
2: it are it, 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 sort of depending on the community, on the messaging, for instance, KwaZulu-Natal, the king, um, due to the high prevalence, Prevalence rates within KZN. The king, um, when circumcision came out, he was initiated. He spoke and he came forth and he said, "Please, I want the Zulu nation to go out and be circumcised." Um, so there's been a really generally and relatively high uptake in KZN relative for, to to. For instance, the Western Cape, um, where messaging is new and and, and this hasn't been um, um, a, 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 the sort of cultural thing amongst the white and coloured communities within the Western Cape. Um, certainly within our closer population, it's been traditionally something that has happened over time. So it varies and there's pockets, even from within provinces, from district to district, there are pockets where there's really high uptake and then there's nothing. So... It does. It certainly varies across the whole of South Africa.
0: Now, SACTRA is involved, obviously, in this project. Um, what other partners do you have that are working alongside you?
2: There are a number of partners. Obviously, uh, we're one of the the PEPFAR funded partners, um, and they're probably, uh, um, of course, it's driven by National Department of Health. So, the Department of Health is the is the big. Um, player in this and then there are a, nov- a number of other key stakeholders, a number of other NGOs um, implementing and supporting Department of Health, actually providing services and then there are other partners that are actually doing um, mobilisation and communication um, around on, around um, male medical circumcision.
0: Now the Clever Dick campaign it's a mobilisation campaign so you've got lots of things happening around this <clears throat> how are you working on awareness?
2: awareness happens as I said it, it's really targeted on the population and the messaging required within that community um, for instance in in the Western Cape we did we used billboards we used radio radio was very big here in the Western Cape um, taxis taxi wraps there were there we putting in um, information brochures within taxis in Swanee we're doing murals we're doing a bit of graffiti we're doing some uh, again with the taxis again in some radio. Um, and then we've got something called seeding, where we've got people infiltrating sort of guerrilla marketing where they're going into the communities, handing out branded condoms. Um, and then, of course, we also have people, foot soldiers, we call them foot soldiers on the ground, talking to individuals one-on-one. Um, and then that sort of brings the whole campaign together when they're actually saying, well, have you seen this? And people say, yes, I've seen that, or I've seen the billboard, and uh, they they can directly talk. We also have um, a a Moby site, cleverdeck.moby, that provides all the information that you require. And then there's also a call center where where you can call in, speak to somebody, and um, they can you can ask any question you want information where to get it where to access the service etc cetera, etc cetera. and that's on 06 06 800 800 um, and of course then our Mobi site is cleverdick.moby and that can that will provide you with with relative information. So that helpline that number again is 06, 06 800 800. Please call me,
0: here. Okay, so please call me. Okay, so now we mentioned you've started out in the Western Cape, you've been to KZN, you're now in Is this going to be eventually across the country? We are
2: rolling it out where where the message where messaging is required. Um, our next stop will be the Free State, um, and um, this is all backed up with with prior um, testing within the communities. Um, we w- whether they are open to to the idea of the Clever Dick campaign, and obviously the messaging is targeted and customized according to to what we get out of that testing prior testing oh, So it's not in, just a
0: blanket sort of this is the program this it's going to and run the assumptions
2: the that we're making yeah. about <laughs> the, all uh, different.
0: absolutely yeah. uh, okay so you've yeah. got to almost tailor make your program That's exactly depending on doing. where you're going to be yeah gosh okay so how many people do you normally see when you how long first of all are you in a particular area and how many people more or less come through the the clinic in inverted commas this isn't always a clinic
2: our particular model, SAC2 Worker Health Program, has a roving model in which we we move, we we rove, and and certainly the time that we spend within a, within a particular area, is dependent on demand. So if we find that there is a huge uptake and, and requirement, we could possibly roll out at one site for five days of the week, or we could roll out once a month at that particular oh, site okay. and move mm. around. So it, it very much, w- we are also, it's customized according to demand within the community.
0: That's actually nice because, you know, it's rather than being so static, well, this is going to be here from this day to that day, and if you don't make it tough, you know. Yeah. Um, whereas this, pretty much you're going with what the community's needs are and, and b- basically responding to that.
2: Correct. And and so we we also realised that within, if we had a fixed site, um, it eventually it becomes saturated. Mm. Um, so we would rather go out and, and access, go into the community's access as opposed to having to bring the communities to this fixed site um, and
0: that that's really and basically this is for men of any age
2: it is targeted at sexually active males between the ages of 15 to 49 however as long as the, the according to the guidelines and and parental consent consent of the, the of the young teenage male as well we will also do it younger than 15 and obviously we will do it older than 49 But the actual focus target population is 15 to 49 sexually active males.
0: And medically, do they need to be medically fit? Is there any sort of medical test before they have this done health-wise? There's
2: all sorts of screening beforehand. We do a TB screening, we do an HIV test screening, we do a blood um, clotting testing, we screen for STIs, um, so, so yes, there's a general health check, um, as in any uh, clinical or surgical um, procedure. Procedure, yeah. Um, so, so that is offered, and 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 then, if screened, okay. And we will then proceed.
0: Very interesting about the blood clotting test because I've been talking quite a bit on this program about the danger of of young boys, especially going off to be through initiation, not having been tested and possibly suffering from hemophilia, and that yeah. that could become a problem. So it's it's good that you. It's test a screening the blood as opposed to, screening, to yes. testing. So mm-hmm. yeah. So it is actually being checked yeah. for something. So where are you at the moment? What's happening at the moment? What's what's on the go right now?
2: Male medical circumcision. Yeah, <laughs> where? <laughs> where, where, are you? It's countrywide. So, so as I said to you, there are probably about two dozen very, uh, civil society and NGO partners that 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 are providing implementation and and doing the services, and uh, together with the Department of Health. So anywhere across the country, at any one given time, somebody could phone up and phone. Uh, this number and say, where is it happening? And they will be provided with that information. So across the country, uh, there's no reason for somebody not to be able to access these services. No, i was asking be because
0: you said you were hoping to roll out in the free state. Certainly the Clever Dick
2: campaign. That campaign. So but the campaign itself, medical male circumcision is a service anytime. anywhere, anytime. Well... Much 95. Okay,
0: well, we're close enough. (laughs) So, that number it's it's 0606 800 800. So, if you're wanting to find out more information, and they'll be able to give them if they had any questions about the procedure, where they can go for the procedure, all of that they can get. And it's a please call me number, so somebody will call you back. Absolutely 0606 800 800, and it's one of those very important numbers. Write it down and don't lose it because you might possibly need to pass it on to a family member or a friend who's interested. But it's one of those things that we all need to talk about and we all need to be aware of because it is something that we can do in this fight that we have against HIV and AIDS. So it's a very important number. Nikki, thank you so much for joining us on the show this evening, and we've put that word out there. I'll give out the number again, and also remember, you can, it's also on cleverdick.mobi as well is the other place you can find out more information. Nikki, thank you very much indeed for your time. Thanks, Karen. I was chatting there with Nikki Saboyl and. She's the executive director of the SACWU Worker Health Program. And we were talking about me- medical male circumcision and the Clever Dick campaign, which is currently being rolled out in Swani. But anywhere in the country, if you need any information about this procedure, you can call 0606 800 800. It's a please call me number, so somebody will call you back. 0606 800 800. Or they're also on cleverdick.mobi. SFM celebrates 20 years of inspiration. Since the independence
2: of Ghana under Kwame Nkrumah, no country in Africa has successfully adhered to the principles
0: of a constitutional democracy except this
3: our country,
0: South Africa. Let us all reflect on how our freedom was achieved. SFM, South Africa's news and information leader. (laughs) Health Matters
1: with Karen Key.
0: Well, eyebrows are a critical facial feature that helps us to define the way we look. And in many ways, eyebrows are more important to one's appearance than scalp hair, as eyebrows are in a more central position on the face and serve as a frame to the eyes. When eyebrows are lost due to health issues or trauma, it could cause psychological problems. And joining me now is Dr. Catherine Davies, and she's a medical practitioner based in Johannesburg. Catherine, good evening. Welcome to the show.
1: Good evening, thanks for having me.
0: So I mentioned eyebrow transplants and you can almost see people at home thinking, eyebrow transplants, what on earth are you talking about? What, what is an eyebrow transplant?
1: So basically, um, it's taking hair from anywhere on the patient or the person's body, usually from the scalp, and actually placing it into the eyebrow, into either scars or where the brow is deficient. And it's always done from the same person. Um, so it can't be done from another person to that person.
0: Now, do the eyebrows continue to grow after the transplant? And, I mean, do they grow differently? If you're taking it from the scalp, would they grow very long, for example?
1: Actually, they do. And then eventually they start taking on the characteristics of the eyebrow hair. So in the beginning, you'll find the patient's wildly trimming these long eyebrows. And then slowly they actually start to mimic eyebrow hairs and look more like a brow hair itself.
0: Now, are there different types of treatment when it comes to reconstructive or cosmetic or whatever you're doing with the eyebrows?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, the majority of patients we see in our practice really have had um, trauma to the face. And because the eyebrows serves a protective function, it's often involved in accidents, burns. Um, so, we usually do reconstructive procedures with the eyebrows. But it's also becoming a popular cosmetic procedure, especially with this big boom of a boom of big brows in the fashion
0: industry. <laughs> really, I didn't know that had come back. Oh, really? <laughs> <It's> back.
1: <clears throat> people always are always plucking them.
0: Now people normally plucking them madly. Now you're telling me the big bushy eyebrows are back. <laughs> They're
1: back. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> well, I didn't even know they were in at any point, so I've obviously missed the boat when it came to that sort of fashion trend. But anyway, no. um, when you talk about trauma, people lose the eyebrows. Obviously, they won't regrow then, naturally. No,
1: so it's a follicle is damaged. So for example with a burn or or a bad scarf I had a patient who was actually um, attacked by a lion. And the type of bad scar, the follicle or the root is damaged. Those those won't regrow. So no matter what um solutions you use, you actually need a transplant if you're gonna get um hair back there.
0: Now, there's also a medical condition. I think it's called trichotillomania, trichotillomania, where people pull um, the hair out themselves or they pull. Normally, you find them pulling the hair off their head. Do they pull the eyebrows out as well? And would those regrow? Because I think you're pulling those almost out by the root.
1: Absolutely. It's actually more common than you think. It's quite a common psychological condition. And eventually, um, it takes quite a while, but you do eventually actually damage the follicles. So they actually um, ruin their brows permanently sometimes. But though, because of the psychological impact of the disease, um, we don't usually transplant those patients because they first need counselling because they'll just pull out the transplant as well.
0: Now, what about people who've had chemotherapy and that sort of thing who've lost eyebrows through that? Can you do what, something about that?
1: What we do, we give it a good chance to grow again um, because although it often takes longer than scalp hair to grow, um, usually the eyebrows and eyelashes do grow back. But after a year or at least two years of waiting then we can definitely beef them up if they haven't grown with a transplant, providing the scalp hair is healthy again.
0: So now how does this actually work, Catherine? I mean, you take the hair off the scalp most, I would imagine. And w- what do you do? Implant each single follicle separately? What, actually, how do you do this?
1: Yes, yeah, so basically we implant root by root um, with using a tiny little device that gets the exact angle and direction of the hair. Um, it's painstaking work because um, it really has to look natural and believable. Um, and then that root um, actually starts growing after about 16 weeks. It's almost like planting a, a seed under the surface of the ground. It takes 16 weeks for it to start growing.
0: And how long does this actually take to do? Because, I mean, each hair, I mean, gosh, you know, how many hairs can you do in one sitting, basically?
1: Um, well, we, we do men with four heads of 8,000 hairs, so a brow is nothing. Um, oh, okay. But it, <laughs> takes, uh, it takes about an hour or two hours um, for a good...
0: So that's actually not too long.
1: No, it's not, and you know you you back to work the same day. It's, it's really minimally invasive.
0: So this is done in the rooms of the doctor, and you it, it's under obviously under local anaesthetic, and you just do is that that's how you do a, it?
1: A bit of a sedation for some of our more skittish patients, um, and the only painful part is the local anaesthetic, which is exactly like a dental injection, um, and then you um, completely numb. And it's actually, you know, quite relaxing. They just lie there while you, while you give them new brows.
0: Are there any people that can't actually have this done? Is there any, are there any contraindications when it comes to something like this?
1: Yes. Yeah, so any medical condition that would cause um, your brows to be lost, um, you'd probably have this brow fall out again because it would affect your hair in general. An example of this would be someone with a low thyroid. And a telltale sign of a low thyroid is actually losing the outer third of your eyebrow. And instead of transplanting there, we'd suggest that you rectify the underlying hormonal deficiency. And unfortunately, people with alopecia areata, which is an autoimmune condition where people suddenly lose all their hair or just their eyebrow hair, um, unfortunately, they're not amenable to the surgery because that hair is then lost again after you transplant it.
0: You mentioned in the, very much in the beginnings, for example, people who've would unfortunately possibly have suffered from a burn condition on the face, would the skin not be completely damaged that you wouldn't be able to transplant the hair to the eyebrows? Or is that something that you work with? It's, it's not too much in, of an issue.
1: Um, in theory, you know, it, it is. But we've actually had great success of quite severe burns. And what we do is we do a two-step process where we first transplant quite sparsely um, and then we find that the blood supply redevelops under there. And then in the second procedure, we fill it up and perfect it. Um, You know, we try to get the eyebrows not to be sisters but to be twins and really improve the symmetry of the burn patients.
0: Now, uh, you know, there was a time back in the day, we talked about the bushy brows coming back, but there was also a time back in the day when people used to pluck their eyebrows almost into non-existence and then pencil them in, and but would yes. keep on doing that. How how bad is it if you over pluck your eyebrows as a woman, or even a man, actually? How bad is this over thing? I mean, are we likely then to end up with no <laughs> eyebrows at the end of the day?
1: Yes, unfortunately, brow hair, is it really behaves very erratically, and you can't predict, um, but often with the over plucking, it just, Grow
0: back it does grow back hello oh i think I to we go to a brow shaping expert i think oh okay we seem to have got a terribly loud hum on the line now Catherine. i'm not quite sure where it came from are you are you still there yes i'm,
1: there. Oh, you I'm are here. oh that's gone
0: no, it's disappeared now that's good sorry you were saying about the over is something we shouldn't be doing yes
1: definitely and water it's unpredictable and often is permanent
0: Oh, okay, right. So we could end up having to permanently pencil in those eyebrows if we do the over plucking thing. And what about the the lat? Well, not the latest. It's been around for quite a while. Where people put those rings in there, sort of through the eyebrows. Is that a bad thing?
1: And um, well, eyebrow jewelry can cause a scar in itself. And um, usually, if it's if there's a secondary complication, like an infection, um, a, a bad thing is it's subjective because if it was my child, I wouldn't really want no. to do it. Um But it often just heals up. Um, but if there is infection, we actually have had to
0: repair quite a few of those spots. So, you know, it, it might just be these things on top of your eyes, but it's something we really need to be looking after them.
1: Absolutely, and it really, um, you know, especially in, in the cases of trauma, when there's asymmetry, it really draws attention to the person's scarring and trauma.
0: We're talking about almost from a cosmetic perspective where we're wanting it to come back because of the symmetry and because it frames the eyes, Do the eyebrows actually do anything? Are they there for a particular reason other than just being there?
1: Yes, they're actually there to shield your eyes from sweat. Um, And I suppose rain, but but mainly from sweat. And um, just the way the whole eye socket is built, they're on the area that if there is trauma to the eye, it usually first will reach the eyebrow and protect the eye. So they do form a protective function.
0: So we should look after them. They are actually necessary. They're not just a sort of a decoration on our face. (laughs) <laughs> we're giving us a whole new perspective on eyebrows now we'll all be sort of looking at them a lot more closely in the mirror but at least we know Catherine you know if we are if there is unfortunately a trauma of some sort there is now something that we potentially could do I'm not saying it would work for everybody but there is the potential that we could do something to rectify the situation
1: absolutely
0: gosh well thank you that's a very interesting chat Catherine thank you very much indeed for joining us this evening
1: Thanks so much. Have a wonderful
0: evening. Thanks, you too. I was chatting there with Dr. Catherine Davies and she's a medical practitioner based in Johannesburg.
1: Health Matters with Karen Key.
0: Colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer and cause of cancer-related deaths worldwide, and it's the fourth top cancer amongst both men and women here in South Africa. And despite this high statistic, very few people have heard about colorectal cancer or even know very much about it. Joan Deere is a colorectal cancer survivor and an ambassador for Be Cancer Awares Ignoring a Gut Feeling campaign. Joan, good evening. Welcome to the show.
3: Oh, good evening, It's So great to be on your program, out always been a great uh, admirer of your, all your programs. Well,
0: thank you very much. But now we get to talk to you about something which you've... The, the interesting part about your story, though, Joan, is that you were very involved in the whole cancer family, if you like, of, of training and, and, and educating, back, basically working very closely with cancer patients back in the UK.
3: No, not oh. in the UK. Oh, I thought you were yeah, in the UK. In South Africa. Oh, in South
0: Africa. Okay. And um,
3: when I retired um, from... I was the Provincial Director of the Cancer Association yes. of Natal. I went to work in the UK, but I, um, unfortunately, the cancer scene was a closed shop over there. Oh, um, nice. okay. Very kind of difficult to get into it, and, you know, the closest I got was to be a hospital social worker at St George's Hospital in London, shooting, and I worked, but even then I wasn't associated with the cancer wards, I was in sort of child protection. But prior to that, for 10 years, I was the Provincial Director of the Cancer Association, quasi et al.
0: Now, even coming from that background though, now you're in London, you were working over there, and you suddenly started having these excruciating stomach pains on the tube, I think, one day.
3: Yes, on the train. I was actually working in Essex, and I, I resided there from Monday to Friday. And spent weekends in London, it was a Monday morning when I was heading back to Essex um, to work and suddenly got these indescribable pains and I kind of thought, well, I'll go with the train to the end of the line and then go back again to London. And, uh, you know, I just didn't know what had hit me. But anyway, uh, they had sort of abated a bit by the time I got there and I got some over-the-counter medication which I sort of kept going with for a long time after that and managed to, to control it, um, you know, more or less, but it was preventing all the typical symptoms, which um, I'd had a, a bowel cancer screening, which is like a routine thing that people over a certain age have over there, and um, this was before these symptoms appeared. And was told that um, got a letter from the NHS saying um, no evidence of um, cancer, no evidence of bowel cancer, but it doesn't mean to say that you haven't got it. Something to that, um, you know, something along those lines, which I suppose was to, you know, cover themselves. Um, so, you know, this is how it all happened. And then I returned home. The end, it was the end of my contract. And was diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome and like a year later um i had had sort of said could i should i have a colonoscopy and my um gp said well if you only if you worried and i thought well if she's not worried why should i be worried and you know so this is what it's all about you go into this denial trend you want to actually believe that all is well and you delay the process and you know so often people present when it's too late um, you know for for cancer treatment.
0: And now people are sort of on the edge of their seats thinking what well, what on earth happened next and luckily for you your brother who's a radiologist in Australia had a look at your scan and he was the one that suggested you go for the colonoscopy anyway.
3: Um, he had before that uh, I'd already had the colonoscopy um, I'd spoken to him on the phone and he said go and have a colonoscopy and he um, saw the scan after I'd actually had surgery. Oh. But this, this was another matter where um, I was diagnosed as fourth stage um, colon cancer because there was thought to be a spread to the liver. But he has done a lot of um, sort of intervention work um, on liver, and that's why I sent him the scan. And he had a look and said, no, he didn't think that um, it had in. You know, infiltrated the liver and um, I had an MRI here and that substantiated his claim and there wasn't any liver intervention. So I was, you know, kind of um, reduced to third stage.
0: So what happened from there, Joan?
3: Then I went into the whole treatment mode of chemotherapy. I fortunately didn't have to have radiotherapy and I, had a, um, I didn't lose my hair uh, but I was on a six-month treatment for uh, you know chemotherapy treatment, which you know had its moments. Um, and you know I think if anyone who's been on chemotherapy would understand, you have um, you know your good days and have your bad days. But I managed to sort of you know carry on with my normal life. I was working um, every fortnight. I had I was on a, a three three-day um regime and um, I, it only sort of kicked in after uh, on about the sixth day and then I would just want to lie on my bed and look at the ceiling for a couple of days but then, you know, just carry on normally and uh, got through it and, you know, I'm very fortunate and uh, doing okay.
0: Now, this is something, as I mentioned at the beginning, that is a lot of people have no idea what this is and not quite sure what they're supposed to be looking out for. So what sort of signs and symptoms should people be aware of? And I don't want them all suddenly panicking out there because, you know, you say, you know, if you have this pain, then suddenly everybody's got that pain. But what are the signs and symptoms that people should be aware of when it comes to the, this particular form of cancer?
3: Well, there are quite a few. In my experience, I had the pain and I had, um, I had to be very careful what I ate. I had, you know, s- sort of um, stomach upset, you know, if I ate certain things. So that is very common. Any sort of change in bowel habit that lasts for more than a few weeks, um, blood in the stool or rectal bleeding, pain and discomfort in the abdomen, which I've you know, already discussed, um, um, during or after bowel movements, especially if this happens every time, the feeling that you can't empty your bowel completely, weight loss, you know, which is common to most cancers, Uh, and also weakness and fatigue. I didn't feel um, weakness and fatigue at all Um, and I think I'm a hyperactive kind of person. I never feel fatigue or exhaustion but that is quite a common symptom. So those are the sort of most common indicators.
0: What was the one thing that possibly went through your mind going through all of this? I mean having been somebody who'd worked in the field for so many years prior to that, was this something that you were almost in a strange way upset with yourself that you hadn't figured it out earlier?
3: Yes, I think that, you know, that I'd been caught in this sort of, um, this sort of common denial process because I wasn't, you know, I'd always had um, quite positive interaction with, um, you know, cancer patients when I worked at the Cancer Association. I saw far more um, cancer patients surviving than otherwise. And, you know, it it came and and it's so sort of commonplace today that, you you know, I always sort of had the feeling, well, you know, it's not if you get it, it's when you get it kind of thing. Mm. And, you know, when it did actually occur, I sort of also went into this, and as I, you know, um, my sort of experience is it's like a box ticking exercise with the professionals. And I think they also kind of, in a way, go into denial mode. And, you know, cancer seems to be the last thing, that uh, the last box that's actually ticked. And, you know, the essential thing of, of all cancers is that you actually detect it in time and you have treatment in time and that you, you know, you listen to your gut feeling, which is what this campaign is all mm-hmm. about. And you, um, you know, get second opinions if you need to, if you're not happy with um you know, the diagnosis given, and you're not sort of improving that much, um, shop around, get second opinions. And um, then, you know, the survival rate is, is very high. In fact, the survival rate generally in all cancers is um, six out of ten, which is three out of five, which is, you know, and with modern medicine improving all the time and treatment, etc. Um the chances of survival are, you know, very good.
0: Now, something like colorectal cancer, it's, it's one of those things, I think, were you unusual almost in a way, Joan, that you actually were having these very severe symptoms? Is this one of those cancers where there are definite symptoms or is this something that we should be checking because we don't always know in the early stages?
3: Well, they say that, you know, over the age of 50, every person should have a colonoscopy. Uh, in any case, as a you know, as a matter of course, and I, I hadn't done that, and I think that um, it's part of any kind of early detection process. You know, in breast cancer, you would have your mammogram and so on. Um, for, for you know, for colon for colon cancer, the other thing is to have a colonoscopy um, before the symptoms start presenting. Um, When the symptoms start presenting, then, you know, basically, um, you need to act very swiftly. But I think, you know, prevention obviously is, um, um, you know, the the best cure of all. And um, one should um, have all these various um, screenings, screenings, um, you know, from from the age of 50 and um, just try and prevent the onset. But I think that, you know, once uh, um, the situation has sort of developed, then you are going to experience any of those symptoms that I mentioned.
0: It's like I talk about often on the show things, as you mentioned, about going for mammograms, going for pap smears, going for mm. all sort, you know, prostate exams, all those sorts of things. Don't wait until there is a symptom if you can help it. As you said, after the age of 50 and in, in the other illnesses possibly, a lot younger, but we should be taking... I always talk about taking responsibility for our health and just going and getting yourself checked out. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. now, I mentioned that you're an ambassador now for Be Cancer Aware's ignoring a gut feeling campaign. What does that involve for you, Joan?
3: Well, you know, um, basically just, um, you know, spreading the word of early detection and um, explaining, you know, what... Um, what and cancer is all about and what the symptoms are, etc., and just spreading the word and the awareness. Um, it's a health promotion program, and um, uh, you know, basically, um, that's what it's all about just prevention and information.
0: Did this change your life in any way, this situation you've just been through, or you would had gone through?
3: no I can't say it really has um, i, I th- you know i I have quite a sort of pragmatic attitude as I said fortunately from my experience of working in the field and interacting with so many people who've had cancer and who have survived um, so i've always had a pretty um pragmatic view of the you know of of the whole thing, and I just honestly would recommend that. One must just get on with your life and not put it on hold. Um, I think that, you know, the more busy you are and active you are, when, even when you're going through the whole treatment process, the better you um, you deal with it. But I think that it's important to look for support. Um, one does need, and there's different forms of support. There are all kinds of different therapeutic um, supports that one can... Um, indulge in um, and, you know, such a, a whole sort of um, um, a whole lot of different ones. And I'm talking here about alternate therapies that one um, can get a lot of support from. Um, I think that um, sort of interacting with other people who um, are also experiencing the whole treatment process, etc., cetera, um, is very therapeutic. Uh, Even just, you know, chatting to everybody in the, the chemotherapy room, when you're having your chemotherapy, I found enormously therapeutic. And the big thing is not to internalize it, it's deal with it. And you'll get through the symptoms so much better if you are addressing them and getting the necessary support that you can.
0: The other thing we need to make very clear here as well about something like colorectal cancer, it's, it's not picky about who it's going to affect. It's men, it's women, it's across racial lines. It, it, it doesn't matter who you are, you possibly could fall Absolutely. victim to it something like no this. it has no
3: respect for any nationalities no. or gender, it's right across the board.
0: And as I said, the scariest thing here, it's the fourth top cancer amongst both men and women here in South Africa. Is that possibly because so little up until quite recently has really been known about this particular form of cancer by the general
3: public? Yes, I I think so. I mean, even when I was in the field, um, and, you know, that that was sort of up until 2000 when I worked in that field, it wasn't that common. But I think it's all kind of, you know... uh, Awareness um, also related to diet. It's very diet related. This is something that I haven't mentioned. Oh,
0: right. Um, okay. I
3: think that, uh, and I think that it's just sort of emerged in, you know, in, in terms of um, um, food and, um, you know, um, basically um, being very careful. Uh, you know. I, we're so diet conscious now in, in so many ways. You know, there's this whole thing about gluten-free and um, high fiber and so on and so forth. And I think that um, colon cancer is very related, you know, to what you eat. And I don't think it's necessarily the cause of it, but I think that um, basically um, it certainly is, once you've been diagnosed, it becomes quite life changing and I think that is really the only thing that um I have really had to sort of um give a lot of attention to and that is my diet there's certain things that are just you know out of bounds, like seeds and skins and um uh pips um very high fiber, unfortunately, um, one can only have, in you know, small doses. And also to have more small meals, frequent small meals a day, rather than, um, you know, three large meals, which, you know, can cause a lot of sort of bloatedness and discomfort. So from that point of view, I think that, um, this has been quite a life-changing experience for me and I have to constantly, uh, you know, think before I buy food and cook food and
0: eat. Well, you mentioned the smaller meals. They say that is a much healthier way to eat anyway.
3: Yes, it is. It's, it's, it's just inconvenient, though. Mm. I, th- I find it difficult enough to find the time to, you know, just prepare the normal three meals a day but to have to think of all the extra ones, In so, between, yes. you know you really do have to sort of give attention to your diet um, and um you know make it a priority of one's sort of daily routine. And
0: you're doing well, now Joan.
3: Yes, I am. Look, we all know that cancer is a relapsing syndrome, but I think if one um has you know the regular checkups that that your oncologist prescribe, et cetera. And you, you know, you adhere to all the sort of preventive um, measures that are recommended, et cetera, You stand a very good chance of, you know, surviving, you know, for as long as necessary. Um, but I think it's it's absolutely essential that one has to keep up with, you know, your cancer care program, which most oncologists set um, for you on an annual basis.
0: Joan, thank you so much for for sharing your story with us and for joining us on the show this evening. It's been wonderful to chat with you.
3: It's been absolutely fantastic being on...
0: Thank you, You Thank Joan. It's been a delightful chat. Thank you so much for your time. Joan, Joan Deere is a colorectal cancer survivor and an ambassador for Be Cancer Aware's Ignoring a Gut Feeling campaign. For more information, take a look at www.becanceraware.co.za or visit the Facebook page Be Cancer Aware. Health Matters
1: with Karen Key
0: you'll find moms and some dads even dashing about late at night or early in the morning trying to figure out what to pack in the children's lunch boxes should it be that same peanut butter sandwich you made yesterday which will either come home again or be swapped out for something a little tastier well i've invited cindy chin to join us this evening and she's a registered dietitian working for woolworths and she's got some fabulous ideas for making those lunch boxes much more fun you may even want to pack one for yourself so I'm sure we kind of half get this right as parents packing these lunchboxes for our kids. What what should we be looking at every day to making sure that's in that lunchbox? Mm.
4: It's a it's a very good question, Karen, and I think a lot of mothers. I feel their pain because for <laughs> me, packing a lunchbox is, is sort of a mundane task that has to be done, and we there's always a bit of guilt attached to it because we think, are we packing it with nutritious things that our children will thrive on? And I think the first thing for me would be. To make sure that your child eats the food, yes. you need to get buy-in from your child to make sure that you're putting in foods that they will actually end up eating, and not swapping out with a friend at school, or you know, dumping it somewhere and going to the tuck shop. So the first thing is to shop with your child, or pack the lunchbox with your child's awareness, so that they're not necessarily packing the lunchbox, but giving consent to what you're putting into it. So not asking for their permission, but really getting their buy-in from the start. So if you're going to put, it's not can I put or vegetables in, but what kind of vegetable can I put in, for instance, so say you have a choice between baby carrots or cucumber or cherry tomatoes, and they 're more likely to eat it if they 've had some choice in the matter rather than just resentfully seeing opening up their lunch box in the morning. And rolling their eyes and saying, oh, no, not not the same old uh, sort in my sandwich yes. again. <laughs> so, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing to look at would be to try to get some sort of balance. So trying to include something from each food group, and that being your carbs for energy, your proteins for muscle building, healthy fats, so some sort of nuts or peanut butter or um, olive oil or avocado, and then looking at something to drink to make sure our kids are well hydrated, especially in the hot weather. And then, of course, your fruits and vegetables in some um, convenient format, and preferably some dairy as well if you can fit that in. So that's the ideal lunchbox, having six of all the food groups included, and remembering that it's not just one meal, but that they will, you can, if you don't manage to get all those things in one lunchbox, that's okay, that you can compensate in breakfast and dinner and throughout the week as well.
0: Your suggestion of all those lovely fresh vegetables and things, (laughs) but I think parents need to be very aware how they pack the Mm. lunchbox as well, because if you all shove it in the same lunchbox, the kid gets to school, you've got the soggy dripping sandwich and sort of this sort of cucumber that's sort of sliding all over Will the place fit, yeah. you have to be very careful how you pack things mm,
4: that's a very good point and I think that's that's the other thing as well to have the right equipment so to get a good um, insulated uh, cooler box or a zip up bag using perhaps half freezing the juice or diluted juice or water and topping it up in the morning and then just putting that into the lunch box as sort of a cooler pack so you don't have to put another ice pack inside the, the lunch box And then also to get the right containers. There's some lovely containers that are either plastic or glass, and you can seal them in different compartments or just little Tupperwares that you can include in the lunchbox to keep things fresh and um, from, you know, sort of, soggy through
0: the day. Now, what you've done, Cindy, as the dietitian for Woolworths, is you've put together some fabulous lunchbox ideas, some of which are things that you can purchase at Woolworths, which are pre-packed things, which Mm. makes everybody's life easier just to pop them in. But for some people who want to do it themselves, you've also got a section on the make it yourself, the budget options. So just give us maybe just one lunchbox, a budget option of a lunchbox, what we can as parents could actually make at home.
4: Yeah, um, so one of the the options is to boil an egg and slice some carrots up instead of going for We do have our snack packs or grazer packs, which have the egg boiled already, peeled with the slice of veggies, but you can easily do that yourself. Just boil a few eggs for the whole family even and just slice up some uh, larger carrots. So that would be instead of buying the baby carrots, just cut up the the carrots. It does take a bit of effort, but not a whole lot of effort if you're really making a salad for dinner the night before. Cucumber, get some cherry tomatoes and put them in a separate container. And a nice idea that kids the younger kids like or maybe even the older kids as well is to get a, a nice sandwich cutter in in an uh, interesting shape and I've recently mm-hmm. seen some lovely ones with okay you get the butterflies and hearts but you also get some lovely dolphin ones or stars and um, that just adds a little bit of a special touch to to the lunchbox so you can cut your bread in those shapes. And instead of buying the pre-packaged yogurt, what you could do is mix your own and put it in a nice container so maybe some flavored yogurt or even better some plain yogurt and adding some some pureed fruit, fresh fruit or um, fruit into the, into the yogurt. And then the other thing is nuts. Nuts are quite costly if you're buying them in individual packets so what you could do is just buy them in bulk and then just put in put them in little portions into the lunchbox so that's just uh, an idea to get something into the lunchbox that you've made yourself or you haven't had to buy it um, in advance. Well,
0: that doesn't sound like too much effort. Mm, mm. And some of that I actually quite liked. I hadn't actually thought of the the, the, low, the, the sort of non-fat, low-fat plain yogurt and adding your own pureed fruit yes, into that. That's yeah. actually quite a fun idea anyway.
4: Yeah, and if you don't have uh, time to puree the fruit, <laughs> yeah, well, yes. we do. we've got some lovely baby fruits that could actually be, you know, they they no sugar added, so then you just, you know, they've just oh, pureed nice. fruit that you can squeeze into your, and they come in lovely sachets as well, so you can just squeeze them into your your yogurt at school and have it as part of your um, your lunch, your fruit as well. So that's another idea.
0: And when it comes to bread, you talk about cutting them into shapes, but what mm. sorts of bread should we be giving our children?
4: Yeah, that's a it's a challenge. I mean, I know myself with my little girls that they don't, the, the idea of a whole wheat bread is not always that appealing. Yes. <laughs> they don't end up eating it, or the, the GI, the low GI seeded um, bread. So what I do is a compromise is that I do alternate it with your white bread but then you do get your uh, digest it's almost bleached fiber (laughs) so it's white bread but actually it contains a favorable amount of fiber in it as well and I use that to alternate with them and over time they've actually just got used to eating the brown uh, higher fiber breads but for for moms who do face that challenge every day an alternative would be even to alternate uh, or to have one slice white and one slice whole wheat and make almost like a checkerboard uh, pattern, you know, so so it will be different colors. And hopefully they'll eat both of them and not just pick out the one.
0: It's <laughs> not just a case, Cindy, of packing that lunchbox. We've actually got to make the lunchbox fun. Checkerboard sandwiches, dolphin-shaped yes, bread. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody did that for me when I was at school. Yeah, it's, not,
4: it's not actually, you know, if you've got a good cutter, it's mm. really just a matter of just putting the two slices of bread together and cutting. So and you can use cookie
0: cutters, I'm sure, yes, if you can't find cutters, bread cutters. For yeah, sure, mm.
4: yeah. Mm. And I mean, if you anything like my little toddler, she doesn't eat the crust anyway. Oh, really? That's the way she learned that from. So if you just cut it, then it's done already for her, and you're not wasting. You can use the other little bits in in other creative ways as
0: well. Oh, so those are some fabulous, very really simple ideas. But we just need, to, I think, it's almost a change of mindset. Mm. Much better than sort of giving your son or daughter, you know. Some money for the tuck shop, yes. um, which in a lot of cases is not, they're not serving the most healthy foods. Some of the schools are now actually moving towards healthier foods at the tuck shop, but unfortunately, not all of them do that. So if your child is not eating what you're packing, mm. uh, you know, they're not going to be getting a, a healthy sort of mid morning snack.
4: Yes, that's correct. I think that's. Part of where parents need to be more proactive is is just being just see, checking out what's actually being sold in the tuck shop, and seeing how you can influence it in a in a practical way, not just criticising it, but actually going in and saying, well, instead of maybe uh, only offering hot dogs as a Friday lunch option, why don't we um, look at including some sort of instead of a, the normal tomato sauce, maybe a homemade tomato and onion. That you put in, so that just adds the nutri- nutritive value, without radically changing the hot dog, or offering um, other, uh, like a, chick- a lower-fat chicken sausage instead of the smoked Vienna, or offering um, like a brown roll instead of just a white roll. So that's just a, a practical way of how we can influence tuck shop. Obviously, they need to make sales at the end of the day, mm. <laughs> but yes. but we if we don't say anything, they're just going to keep feeding uh, the ch- children whatever they they think is most popular and we can actually as a parent group be more proactive and try to influence it in a positive way.
0: Now Woolworths actually has a tuck shop manual if you like on your website so if people want to go and have a look at that they can take some advice from that.
4: Yeah it's a a lovely PDF uh, manual that was developed a, a few years ago in conjunction with few dietitians and internally at Woolworths as well and it, it addresses all areas, not just for parents but the actual, you know, for the school set up, the, the people running the tuck shop, the principal, the teachers and and how the parents can get involved with that. So it's such a practical tool that I think all schools should really try to get their hands on it. And it's free. I
0: mean, it's something we developed for all schools. That's always the best part when something is free, people are more likely to go and have a look at it. Mm-hmm. So, But Cindy... And, and all this information about the lunch boxes and the quick and easy convenient options as well as what you could do, the pre-packed options from Woolworths, mm-hmm. all that, i may I give that out to the listeners yes. if they're interested?
4: Yes, you may. It's also available on our website. Um, but, yes, you're welcome to, to give that to the listeners as well. Well, thank
0: you so very much indeed. So if you're looking for a copy of, of that healthy lunchbox ideas or the tuck shop guide, just drop me a mail, health matters on SAFM or that's the Facebook page, or healthmatters at safm.co.za, healthmatters at safm.co.za, and I will send you the link or I'll send you the copy, whichever I have, and uh, hopefully we'll get our children be- to be a lot healthier. I was chatting there with Cindy Chin, and she's the registered dietitian for Woolworths, and if you'd like to find out more about what they're doing at Woolworths as far as healthy living, and especially for our children and for ourselves, of course, take a look at the website. It's www.woolworths.co.za. And that's it for health matters for this week. I'm Karen Key. Thanks for joining me, and I'll be back with you again tomorrow evening, just after nine, with time to travel. So join me then, and don't forget, there's now a list of available documents for health matters. So if you'd like any of them, take a look at the Facebook page Health Matters on S A F M, or drop me an email to health matters at safm.co.za, and I'll send you the list of documents so you can choose what you'd like to have. Well, Stephen Kirk is up now with some nighttime music. Hi, Stephen. How's your lunchbox doing?
3: <laughs> I was gonna say I resent the. The fact that you made fun of peanut butter sandwiches they are delicious and uh, they are very nutritional I think they might be a little bit fattening especially the amount of peanut butter I put on my sandwiches it's more like peanut butter and a a crumb or two of bread but I particularly like the idea of a pilchard and peanut butter uh, sandwich actually I normally just bring fruit to work uh, which is not a bad thing a couple of boiled eggs. Anyway, it's not a bad lunchbox. Anyway, with you until midnight. Now I'm getting hungry, just at the thought of my lunchbox. Through until midnight, it's the S.F.M. Music Selection. Chilling things out on
1: a Tuesday night. First, though, news time.